now more than ever, we need a guide to ethical business behavior. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is a Supply Chain Brain podcast. Humans are constantly making moral compromises and justifying their behavior. The same goes for businesses, which, after all, are nothing more than a group of people who are navigating with flawed moral compasses. Recently, though, we seem to have entered a time of especially transgressive behavior on the parts of companies. Facebook, Volkswagen, Starbucks, Toyota, and Papa John's are just a few of those to have found themselves in a moral quandary. It makes one wonder whether a system that is created for the purpose of returning profit to its investors is even capable of behaving by ethical standards, especially if such behavior cuts into earnings. My guest today, however, strongly believes that companies can and must follow ethical guidelines. He is Christopher Gilbert, author of There's No Right Way to Do the Wrong Thing, as well as senior consultant with Noble Edge Consulting. We'll talk about what businesses must do to avoid ethical lapses, to shift from what he calls moral autopilot to a full awareness of the rightness and consequences of one's actions. So here is my conversation with Christopher Gilbert. Dr. Christopher Gilbert, welcome to the program. Thank you, Bob. It's a real pleasure. Would you trace for me your interest in this whole topic of ethical business and ethical business behavior? Absolutely. I'll make the story short if I can. I was asked as a professor at university to substitute for a fellow professor who got ill for a graduate business course in business ethics. This is around 2000 when Enron that big energy supply company that defrauded so many was hitting the radar screens. And I realized in that course, as I was teaching the students, that they were having what I've come to call an ethics out-of-body experience. That is, as they were reading these cases about the awful and evil corporate citizens out there that were making terrible decisions, they themselves were thinking and speaking as though they would never, ever make those kinds of choices. All of they were downloading illegal software, cutting people off on the freeway, cheating in relationships. I realized there was this disconnect, and I've seen it in my presentations beyond the university realm, where somehow or other we think it's the bad folks that make poor ethical choices and the rest of us are the ones that make good ethical choices, where each one of us make choices up and down that moral ladder every day. And so that got me very interested in doing that, looking at it. It's interesting you talk about sitting around a table at a seminar, perhaps, on ethical behavior, and each person at that table feels that he or she is ethical, but they're concerned they want to make sure that the other people are listening because they're not sure that that's the case for anybody other than themselves. So that certainly is an interesting perspective that you have. Given the fact that people tend to feel like they themselves are ethical, but those around them are not necessarily. I'm just wondering, what kind of world are we living in today? Are we getting better? Are businesses getting better? Or is, is there a continuum of kind of a moral arc that you see? This is a really good question, and I'll sort of approach this two ways. First of all, all of us are hardwired to progress. 
So the idea that uh, the kind of ethical choices we make now somehow are worse or better than the ethical choices in the past has to be seen in that set of lenses that, yeah, you know, you think about this, we actually have greater capacities now to make better ethical choices than we did in the past. So that's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is that every one of us has the innate desire to carry forward an ever-advancing civilization. That, That sounds very philosophical, but if you just ask yourself the question, do you want your children to live in a worse world the same world or a better world than the one you're in. 98% of the folks I asked in my trainings and presentations around the globe say they want a better world for their kids. And there it is right there. I think we all have this innate desire to have something better happen in the future than happened to us. And we recognize we've got the capacity to make that happen. So from that perspective, I'm very optimistic. Even though there are these times when we see a lot of high-profile folks making terrible decisions. Part of that's the media gets us more information than in the past. But I think part of it is it's actually getting the right people to ask the right questions. It really forces us to begin to examine the moral ground that we stand on when we make our own choices. Well, before we go any further in this discussion, I would like to touch upon a distinction and definition that you make between the words ethics and morals. Could you clarify that for me, please? Absolutely. And and semantically, we use them interchangeably. So in some ways, it's not necessarily an important thing. But on the other hand, if we're talking about morals and ethics, like my book does, I call morals the standards of an individual or a group, even a nation, about what's right and what's wrong. And then ethics are the actions that are taken after we make that examination, uh, either good actions or poor actions. But maybe briefly, you could say, uh, as the book does, that morals are in the talking and ethics are in the walking. Do you believe that there are never any gray areas when it comes to defining ethical behavior? You're either right or wrong, ethical or not ethical, from an individual standpoint and from a corporate standpoint? Yeah, this is a a wonderful question to ask, because I think, in fact, it's one of the great problems we have now when we've got this conversation about ethics and we're making choices. I think it's very important for us to understand that saying ethics are gray is like using the phrase sort of pregnant, I'm sorry, either you are being ethical or you are not being ethical. And there is solid ground to stand on. So instead of looking at ethics as philosophical or iffy or legal or even religious, I think it's remarkably more effective for good decisions to think of ethics more like the guardrails along the sides of a bridge. Those guardrails aren't about penalty or being legal or avoiding sin or even some set of road rules. There are protection. And in fact, we're probably very happy they're there. They're a privilege for us to have those guardrails along the side. If you imagine crossing a high bridge on a windy day with no guardrails along the side, what your behavior is, in a sense, it's sort of like living life without ethics, acting like the guardrails. So I think while there are situations that make it difficult, sometimes impossible, to think of ethics as black or white, it's the situations that gray things up. The ethics are there to tell us what's right and what's wrong. Well, you do address the question of ethical relativism. I mean, that does exist, does it not? I mean, it certainly does between societies, between people, uh, between companies. Is there such a thing? Is there maybe not one strict definition of what constitutes ethical behavior? In some ways, if you look at ethics as trying to tell us the right things to do and the wrong things to do, we can certainly look around the world or even within our own nation and see there are a lot of different people that understand that right and that wrong in a different way. But there are universal principles that we live by every day, even if we don't recognize what they are. I'm sometimes asked to contrast law and ethics as a way of trying to take a look at different laws or talking about different ethics in different countries. And I would say one way to to take a look at this is is to look at it from the perspective of virtues. If you want to talk about the exercising law at a four-way stop sign, 
it's not really the legality there that's getting us to stop. Yeah, sure, we might get caught or we might be worried that somebody's watching. We might even be worried we're going to have an accident. But for the most part, what works at that four-way stop sign is a virtue, and it's called trust. It is that I trust you will stop and you trust I will stop that that four-way stop sign works. And in fact, we could look at this in, in almost any terms, business terms in particular. This is really not about the grayness of trust being different here and trust being different there. Look, you either trust or you don't. Ethics are about the right and wrong of being able to build trust or for making unethical just decisions erode trust. So I think from that perspective, it actually provides us sounder ground to make choices, even though at the moment there's a lot of relativity that exists in the world. And I'll say one more thing, not to diatribe here too much. If you think about relativism, that is, one group thinks this is ethical where they are, but we, our group, think 180 degrees apart and, and it's ethical where we are, but we're both saying, well, that's fine. You think that's ethical, go ahead. And we think this is ethical and we're going to go ahead. The great difficulty is you carry that far enough and nothing is unethical if there are enough people who believe in it. And we know, of course, that's not the case either. Not all things are ethical. But relativism would argue, well, you know, for the true relativist, anything that a large number of people believe and act upon is ethical. Uh, I'm sure we don't want uh, child labor. We don't want slavery back. We don't want a number of things that we would say, no, there are lines to be drawn. So. Yeah, those are certainly universals, or at least a few universals. You say, I believe, your your ethical principle number 14, you have many ethical principles here that run through this book. Uh, you say, if interactions between the two ignore the difference in, in ethical considerations, then ethical relativism deeply shades any hope of universal rights in both groups. So you're saying that the differences may exist, but they need to be acknowledged and dealt with in some way. Is that what this means? Yeah, because if you acknowledge them and actually consult about them together, so you're sort of examining your own morals and how you reach that ethical behavior, you actually will come upon a universal principle that protects everybody's capacity to achieve their fullest potential, right? So there's a universal standard. Everyone on the planet has the right to achieve their fullest capacity. Or you could ask the question, who does not have that right? And who would decide who doesn't have that right? But of course, we can look around countries that don't, for instance, allow women into education, into classrooms. Well, that's a violation of their universal principle, gender-driven or not, that universal principle, that they have a right to achieve their fullest capacity, which includes the option of an education for them. So even though they may believe that there, it's really kind of silly for us knowing that the difference in getting an education and not getting the education to at least begin that conversation about, well, why doesn't everyone have that right in your current system uh, why doesn't everybody have that right to achieve that capacity by going through education? I have to ask, there, there's no question about whether individuals, whether human beings can be moral or not moral or amoral or immoral. But when it comes down to it, can a company be moral? I mean, after all, what is a company but an organizational structure, the uh, goal of which simply is to return a profit to its investors? That's what a business is. And yet you are imposing upon that structure an ethical consideration. Is that really possible to do, given what a business is at core? Another really great question. I think that if you take a look using a systems approach to any business operating within the system, just like any cell in the body has to operate on behalf of that system, that is keeping that system alive, not just acting for itself to keep the system alive, then, in fact, businesses, we could say the same thing about any organization we could say the same thing about in society, unless they're acting on behalf of not only themselves, but society as well, whether that's the local community around them or the employees that they have or some sense of an obligation for social responsibility. 
that occurs, then ultimately they kill off the system that keeps them alive. It's like cancer. Cancer is very interesting because from a system's perspective, it kills off the host in which it survives. So from that perspective alone, it's worthy of business to think about how it operates, not only for itself, but on behalf of others to make sure that that system is healthy. So it's healthy. And we've got numbers on this now. We can look at ROIs of organizations that take on social responsibility, for instance, or environmental concerns in a very concerned way, in a very uh, distinct and designed way. These organizations that make it a, a part of their mission to give back to community in some way or to look at the community being healthy, they're making somewhere between 4 and 37% higher return on investment than the organization, whether those considerations are secondary. So there actually is a bottom line improvement when you take these tasks on. So you would argue that ethical behavior in a lot of cases is good for business in pure profit terms. I mean, obviously, let's take, for instance, overseas offshore labor. You pay those workers more money. It costs you more money. You have to pass that along in the price of the product. Maybe you lose sales. Are you saying that is more than offset? by ethical behavior in other areas so that bottom line, the company ends up better? Far more than offset. In fact, I had a very interesting conversation with a large shoe company located in the Northwest about their using labor in Asian countries to create their shoes and then ship them back here. And the real concern around the table is how we keep our costs low. And I said, let's flip this around a little bit and let's just talk about one market. For instance, China, 3 billion people. I said, so are you more concerned about charging a, a huge price to a small market and, and therefore worrying about the costs? Or would it be better to actually create a system where at least over a certain period of time, you have 3 billion more consumers that can buy your product, whether it's a higher price or a lower price, and that volume alone far more than makes up for what you're trying to do with the cost savings of using the labor that you're using. So I think the idea here is that if you're thinking in a large systemic way, that's going to wind up being far more profitable to your organization. It doesn't mean you have to be a caregiver for the entire world, but of course you outline an international example. I'm just worrying about the local community or the grounds your business is on as a part of giving back to that system that helps you improve. You know, you mentioned cancer. It leads me to, to wonder, you know, you do mention in the book what I guess we could consider to be the poster child for ethical questions in the world of business, and that is cigarette manufacturers. Where do you put that on the ethical scale? Yeah, pretty interesting. I'll use this as an example. They're very restricted in the kind of marketing that they do. And one of the considerations they gave to this shrinking opportunity to advertise in our country was that because they could no longer play on our ignorance, we knew about their research, we knew about the things they'd been holding back, we began to see the outcome of folks that were permanent smokers. We got smart and said, we don't want this to happen here anymore. So what did the cigarette manufacturers do? They said, well, then let's go out to the rest of the world internationally and play to those folks that don't quite have all that information or education yet. And I don't know if you've done any traveling, I imagine you have, but if you go to these other parts of the world, you see smoking going on there like it did here back in the 50s and the 60s because they saw a market that wasn't educated or hadn't educated itself like we had to go and sell its products. Um, ultimately, it's not taking care of the system that it's in. And we can see the results of this as there are greater and greater restrictions, even though it's a fashion or a fad for some generations to smoke, there's still a lot less smoking going on now nationally, a great deal more going on internationally than we've had in the past because they simply were restricted from doing the advertising they did. And yet that particular business appears to be 
unethical by definition. It's not a question of how can we run that business in an ethical manner. The business itself is unethical in that case. Doesn't that seem like an argument that could be made? I would say clearly that when you're manufacturing a product that you know is not healthy and that you know you're hooking people onto, even though it is unhealthy, and that they've had that research for 70 years now, I would say that's, yeah, that's definitely an unethical act. I'd also say that there are things being manufactured now that perhaps you and I are consuming that they have the same research about the health of that product, but because socially we accept it, in fact, we even invite others to partake in it, we don't think about that side of it yet, um, alcohol is one example of this. And while I'm not being a teetotaler here, what I'm trying to say is that even though we know there's research out that talks about how alcohol in any level is a poison to the body, you've got alcohol manufacturers touting that doctors are saying that a drink a night is a good thing for you, just like cigarette manufacturers did with cigarettes back in the 30s, the 40s, and the mm-hmm. 50s. Doctors would come on and say, smoke, your throat clears, you got better lungs, et cetera, et cetera. But Socially, we have to get engaged in understanding what these products do to us. And as we do, we change what happens around us. And ultimately, the law changes and you'll see these things change. So I don't want to browbeat smokers here because, of course, for those folks that are drinking alcohol as well, you're in a sense in the same boat that smokers were back in the 30s and the 40s. We don't have that information. We're not necessarily interested in that information. And so consequently, we don't look at it the same way. Well, let's bring it up to date, a more modern example. The founding principle of the founders of Google was don't do evil. They found that that was a difficult thing to follow. I mean, what about China? (laughs) Should you allow China to oppress people in a country where Google is operating? What about advertising? What about privacy? What about all these issues that they have had to deal with subsequently? Don't do evil is not an easy thing to follow up on, is it? No, it's absolutely true. And in some cases, I'm not sure Google falls into this category, although it might. You could take a look at technology, and and the ultimate ethical question to ask about technology is, if we can do it, should we do it? Right? So sometimes this catches up with us. So perhaps in the case of Google or any of the folks that are relying on a great deal of public information that can be used in wrong ways, just because we can do it, should we do it? Is there a reason perhaps to create some of the restrictions around these things, knowing that policies can be bent, systems can be utilized in a wrong way. Are there things that we should do ahead of time that necessarily aren't very profitable, by the way, at least up front? Are there things we should do ahead of time to get us to the point where can do and should do are the same thing? So should a CEO come down from his or her mountain and Moses-like deliver to the employees of the organization some kind of Ten Commandments of Ethical Behavior. Not ten suggestions, as you joke about in your book, but ten commandments. This is how we're going to go forward. Does it start there, and is that a workable strategy? On one hand, the largest shadow is cast from the top. So whenever senior executives or the CEO or the board take on the mantle of ethical behavior in the organization and then not only speak but live that mantle, it's going to make a difference. But ultimately, as my book points out, it's the people that are in that organization and people are the organization, by the way, but it's the people in that organization making small choices every day that's ultimately going to ensure or create ethics across that organization. As I said before, and and you mentioned, I go to presentations and I'll ask people that come to an ethics presentation of some sort that I'm giving, and and I say, how many of you here today because you're unethical and no one raises their hand? (laughs) And then I say, yeah, because we all live by the highest standards. How many people are glad that the person on their left 
and the writer here today, and of course all hands go up. I think one of the disjoints, and this is what my book is, is trying to help in this conversation, uh, help us to see and understand and, and do some things about, that disjoint is that somehow or other, even our small choices, we can rationalize and we don't look at them on an ethics radar screen. And the title of the book is really about this, right? There's no right way to do the wrong thing. What we wind up doing is the wrong thing and we rationalize it as right. So we'll come up with small excuses, especially with the small choices. And what we have to do is begin to put all of our choices that have an impact on others now or in the future. That's an ethical choice. We have to put all of our choices on an ethics radar screen that blips when we know we're impacting somebody in a way that they don't want to be impacted or haven't had input in about being impacted. And that begins to change our behaviors in day-to-day, moment-to-moment because we start to live into a more ethical life as we think more and more about our impact on others, not just our friends and family, but everybody who's going to be impacted. Well, there are many, many more details and advice for companies and people who would like to follow the standards and the rules that you're proposing here in your book, There's No Right Way to Do the Wrong Thing. Dr. Christopher Gilbert, I want to thank you so much for being with me. I will link to this book in the show notes to our episodes so our readers can access it and find out more. But in the meantime, thank you very much for a fascinating discussion. Well, thank you so much, Bobby. Really appreciate it. And you can also get us at hashtag EthicsRUs if you want tweets and Twitters that maybe are at the other end of the spectrum from the main stuff going on now. That was my conversation with author and consultant Christopher Gilbert talking about the need for business to engage in ethical behavior. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time.